Well, if you looked at our verses this morning, and I hope you did, uh, since that goes out every week and you have a chance to spend some time in our passage before we look at it together, you'll see that this is one of the most controversial passages in all of Romans, in fact, all of the Bible in many cases, and Glenn Frick was kind enough to remind me of that this week. He uh, sent me a text, and it had a little screenshot of a uh, quote, and it says this. It says, if you could ask a dozen New Testament scholars to list the five most difficult passages in the New Testament, most would include Romans 7, 14 through 25 on their list. Thank you, Glenn Frick. That same group would likely disagree with one another on the interpretive framework most helpful for interpreting the passage. So needless to say, (laughs) there's been a lot of scholarly debate, and the debate is about who's being described in these verses. Some believe it's describing a battle of a person who has not yet come to faith, and as hard as they try to overcome sin, they just can't do it. Others see it as a Christian in a similar battle, and they're choosing to to rely on their own strength instead of trusting in God's Spirit, and in that case, they are equally as unsuccessful in overcoming sin. Some see it as a carnal Christian who's young and still learning in their faith. Some say, no, this this is a mature believer who's right in the middle of the battle against sin's influence in their life. And we could spend all morning trying to resolve this long-standing debate, but I think probably two things would happen. Number one, we would have no more better success in solving this debate than any of the scholars over the last 2,000 years. And the second thing is, I think we'd probably miss out on Paul's primary point in this passage. And so to understand that point, I want to Go back and review the main idea of what we talked about last week, where Paul's emphasis was on the purpose of the law. And that purpose was summarized beginning in chapter 7, verse 12. So let me read that to you again. Paul says, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Last week, we talked about how the law is not the problem. Sin is the problem. The law, ordained by God, as Paul says here, is holy, it's righteous, it's good, Like the imaging of an MRI, it exposes what is otherwise hidden. The law is not bad, but it does reveal what is bad in us. You see, the law was never intended to be a pathway to salvation because no one has the power in and of themselves to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. The law is a mirror to our soul, not a method to be made right. But that fact is actually true for both the believer as well as the unbeliever. The law has no power to save, which we know that to be true for those who have not yet come to faith. It has no power to get them there in and of themselves. It's not a pathway to salvation. But on the other hand... The law does not have power to sanctify. 
which is true for the believer. So in other words, the law cannot rescue, nor can it redeem. So, as a Christian, we will have no more success in following the law in our own strength now as we did before we came to Christ. So in that sense, it really doesn't matter who's being described in this passage because the very same principle applies to both. Do you see that? Far more important, in my opinion, is the understanding of how the battle against sin is ultimately won in the life of a Christian. Where do we find freedom from sin's control? Where do we get the discernment for sin's deception in our life? Because we all know that's a battle that we're going to fight until the Lord returns, right? So in chapter 8, I believe Paul ultimately answers that question, but here at the end of chapter 7, he describes the futility of that struggle in our own strength. In fact, it's interesting to me, I counted them up. In these 12 verses, Paul uses the personal pronouns I and me 36 times. I think you see from just that, his focus is on the futility of our own self-effort. So, For the sake of our discussion this morning, because this is relevant to all of us, I want us to look at this from the perspective of a believer who's in a battle against sin. But let me say it again, so don't miss this. When we rely on the flesh, the outcome is the same whether you are a believer or not. The major difference is, and this is major, the major difference is the Christian is the only one who has a choice. Only the Christian is a new creation and a partaker of the divine nature. Only the Christian is set free from sin's control, but they are not immune to sin's influence in their life. I was reminded of that fact this week as I read the news of Ravi Zacharias, a man that I highly respected who clearly has been exposed for some immoral sin in his life, and it's gut-wrenching. But it shows us no one is immune. So we can choose to battle in our own strength, or we can rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. The end of chapter 7 gives us the futility of the first choice, and then in chapter 8, we see the victory found in the second. But through it all, Paul is urging us to live out of who we already are in Christ. Finding life in the Spirit and not in the flesh. So before we look at our word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we want to come uh, to your word with humble hearts because we recognize that we, every one of us, every day is in a battle against the influence of sin that surrounds us in the world in which we live. And Lord, we sincerely desire as your people to live a life that brings glory and honor to your name, to to live out of the freedom from sin's control, to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet we know that this is something that we have to be mindful of in order to live in that reality. So help us see that more clearly this morning. Give us comfort, but encouragement and also conviction where needed. We pray this in your name. Amen. 
So if you will, turn to Romans chapter 7, and we'll uh, begin in verse 14. Romans chapter 7, verse 14, where Paul writes and says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I'm doing, I do not understand, for I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But I do the very thing I do not want to do. I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. And Paul begins this first section by saying we, speaking for Christians. He says, we know that the law is spiritual. It's God-breathed. He finished that section by saying, we know, we as Christians know that the law is good. And in between those two bookends, you see the evidence of a battle. And in that battle, the law is neutral. The law defines what is right and good in the eyes of God. It exposes the deceitfulness of sin. And Paul knows that it's good because he says in verse 16, I agree with the law. I know that it's right. I know that it's good. And yet, in his own strength, he cannot comply with the law on his own. He says, I'm a flesh, sold into bondage of sin. Here, Paul is recognizing the limitations of his own humanity, where, like we read in Galatians, the people who began their walk with Christ by following the work of the Spirit were now trying to protect, perfect their life by using the power of the flesh, which we know has no power in and of itself. They were living in the flesh and not in the Spirit. Now, I'll be the first to admit, when I read this passage, it's challenging because back in chapter 6, verse 6, we see where Paul says, our old self was crucified and we are no longer a slave to sin. But if you'll remember, he goes on in that same chapter in verse 12 and he says this, therefore... Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So on one hand, it's true. We are no longer a slave to sin. But on the other hand, the in influence of sin is undeniably still active in our lives. And we must choose. We must choose not to let sin reign. But if we rely on the flesh, if we trust in our own strength, we cannot overcome the power of sin's control. In fact, we can actually fall back into the power of sin's control. We know that's true because of what Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter 4, verse 9, when he says, Now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless things to which you desire to be, here it is, enslaved all over again? As Paul says in our passage in Romans chapter 7, we are not able to practice what we know we should do, and we end up doing the very things that we hate to do. The law is good because it brings conviction of our sin. But 
God did not give us the law to produce righteousness in our life. That's not its purpose. With that in mind, I just want you to think back to Paul's pre-conversion pedigree as a Pharisee, okay? You'll remember in chapter 3, verse 6 of Philippians, he says, as to the righteousness which is in the law, here's his conclusion, before Christ, he says, found blameless. In other words, he's arrived. He's used the law to produce a sense of righteousness in his life, blameless. But, but here in Romans, we see something very different. Paul says the law doesn't produce righteousness. It brings conviction of sin. He desires to follow the law and do what God says, but he admits he cannot fulfill it in the strength of his flesh. There there is this healthy tension between knowing and doing. And every true believer who sincerely desires to follow Christ understands that tension, don't you? The the, the tension between knowing and doing. In fact, some might even say that the presence of that tension is the evidence of belief. Because according to Ephesians chapter 1, or chapter 2, verse 1, apart from Christ, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Since we indulge in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we are ruled by a sinful nature. And we do not fight against our selfish indulgence. There is no tension there. But what Paul is describing in Romans chapter 7 looks very different. This is a new creation reality that does not exist apart from a new life in Christ. The battle is evidence of belief. You see, I believe in the end, we are better off admitting that we are broken than than we are pretending that we've got it all together. Look at how he continues in Romans chapter 7, uh, verse 17. So now, no longer am I the one... Excuse me. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, here's the qualification, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but, or do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Do you see the tension there? It's very clear, and I don't know about you, but I read these passages and I go, yep, get it. Live it, understand it, make sense to me. And if we want to know what the heart of the battle is, we need to see what is happening in the members and what is happening in the mind. We see this in verse 23 where Paul identifies this war between the law of the members of his body 
and the law of his mind. This, again, should take us back to Romans chapter 6, verse 13, when it talks about that we either present our members uh, as instruments of unrighteousness by obeying sinful lusts, or we present them to, as instruments of righteousness by following God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the end, Paul goes on to say later in that passage, we are a slave to the one we choose to obey. Now, if you'll remember back when we looked at this passage, I pointed out how the word for instrument in the original language was used to describe a weapon of war. So an instrument of righteousness fights against the rule of sin. An instrument of unrighteousness fights against the rule of God. But here's where the beauty of the law comes in. Because as a new creation in Christ, the law is now written on our hearts. We know that to be true because of what the prophet Jeremiah tells us about the new covenant promise fulfilled in those who trust in Christ. He says in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, speaking for God, he says, God says, I will put my law in them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. I think that's what Paul is describing in verse 22 when he says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man, written upon his heart. This is the evidence of a miraculous transformation in the heart of those who believe. But Paul goes on and says, but there is a different law in the members of his body. This is the reality of his humanity yet to be transformed because we're all in process. Let me give you an illustration to try to clarify this point. When my brother Jay passed away of cancer, I was in a counseling session with a man by the name of Dr. Tom McGovern. My family actually knew Dr. McGovern when I was smaller because he was a priest in the Catholic Church. He then left the ministry, ended up getting married, and pursued a career in counseling. He's a good man, really appreciated his insight during that difficult time in my life. And one of the sessions that we had together, we were sitting there, and he receives a phone call. He, he takes the call, talks briefly, and then hangs up and apologizes and says, I'm sorry, I really needed to take that. That was a, a good friend of mine calling to congratulate me for being 27 years sober. After hearing that, I thought, I think that's a healthy perspective because it's a reminder that the craving of what once ruled his life never really goes away. And as soon as you think you no longer have a struggle, that's when you become most vulnerable. In a similar way, our lives were once ruled by the power of sin. And like any addiction... That craving for sin never really goes away. But as soon as you think you no longer have a struggle, that's when you become most vulnerable. Again, we are so much better off admitting that we are broken than pretending that everything's okay. The goal of a Christian is faithful obedience 
by living out of our new identity and not our old humanity. That's why Jesus told his disciples back in Matthew 26, verse 41, he says, keep watching, keep praying. Why? So that you may not enter into temptation. May, you may not give into the influence of sin. Why? Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Paul makes a similar point in verse 18 of our passage. He says, for I know nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh, but the willing is present within me, but the doing of good is not. We must choose to live out of our new identity, not our old humanity. The influence of sin is ever present in our lives and the world in which we live, and that craving for sin never fully goes away. Our mortal bodies will always remain susceptible to sin's control. And trying to resist the power of sin's control in our own strength is a frustrating futility. What I'm sure at some level we've all found to be true is that we just end up returning to old habits and empty pursuits. But that's our old humanity, not our new identity. Because you are a new creation in Christ. You are no longer ruled by a sinful nature. In fact, you have become partakers of a divine nature. In fact, let me read that reality to you from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Listen to what he says here. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his very precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And Peter is saying that we are transformed by God's truth. We live by these magnificent promises, and that's what makes us partakers of the divine nature. Living by that divine power is what leads to a life of godliness. That's what he tells the Galatians. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Paul says that the war being waged is a battle of the mind. It's a battle of belief. And the more we live out of who God says we are, the more we become who God says we will be. Our greatest need is to become who we already are in Christ, living out of our new identity and not our old humanity. Look at how he continues as he finishes up in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. 
There's a Scottish theologian who once said, said that man will recognize their sin in direct proportion to their understanding of the holiness of God and his law. I think we see that very evident in Scripture. Look at Isaiah, right, and his reaction when being confronted by the presence of God. Romans, or Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, he says this, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Paul might say, I am wretched. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, when we are confronted with the righteous holiness of God's law, we are appalled by the reality of our own sin. In Rome, or 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 reminds us that if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, then God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. As we sang this morning, as Brian mentioned, our victory over sin is ultimately found in surrender to God. And we battle ultimately because we know that the struggle is only temporary. That's why Paul asks, who will set me free from this body of death? Where will we find release from the limitations of our humanity? And he says, thanks be to God. There's the answer. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. That's where we find the victory. He is the one who will set us free. I love how Paul describes, I believe, the setting free in chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 50. Listen to what he says here. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must take on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. That's when we are ultimately rescued from this body of death in which we now live. Everything within us, even creation itself, groans in anticipation of that day. But until that day, the battle rages on. And it is a battle. Paul wants us to know that we cannot win in our own strength. But God is gracious, isn't he? He doesn't allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able, but he allows us to endure by always providing a way of escape. God is so gracious. He understands that we will suffer, but he tells us that these momentary afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. God is gracious because he does not leave us to ourselves. He doesn't say, hey, go figure this out, Jeff, and see what you can do on your own. He doesn't do that. God is with us. God is for us, and his spirit is at work within us. We just need to learn to trust in him more than we trust ourselves. Living out of our new identity, 
and not our own humanity. So here's one of the things that I really want you to walk away with this morning. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a message of do more, try harder. Again, if we go back to Galatians, this is not a matter of beginning by the Spirit and then continuing on the own so that somehow we are being perfected by works of the flesh. It's just not possible. But all too often, that's what we do to try to overcome sin. We try to manage our sin. We try to do this battle on our own. And it can look very spiritual when we do. We can memorize Scripture. We can quote Bible verses. We can regularly attend church. We can serve those who are in need. And, and I hope you understand, none of those in and of themselves are bad things to do. But they are not the means to produce righteousness in your life. In fact, you'll be just as frustrated doing spiritual things as you are trying to battle sin on your own. The battle is not won by doing the right things. The battle is won by knowing the right person. The battle is not done by doing the right things. The battle is won by knowing the right person. So yeah, reading the Bible is really important, but only if you want to understand God and get to know Jesus. That's why you read your Bible. Being in community is incredibly important but only because you learn more about Jesus in the lives of other people. You can't discover it all in your own because he displays himself uniquely in the gifts of those around you. We should serve the needs of others, but only because we see Jesus in the least of these. The battle is not done by doing the right things. The battle is ultimately won by knowing the right person. It is a relationship that transforms our lives. Listen, if you would, to how Paul describes this reality in Philippians chapter 3. Look at how the battle is won. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. And may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, doesn't that sound distinctly different than his pre-conversion pedigree? <laughs> he had arrived. He had righteousness from the law, but here he says, no, that's not true. My righteousness comes from God on the basis of faith. And look how he continues in verse, nine, verse 10, that I may know him. And the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I might attain the resurrection from the dead. Instead of finding confidence in the flesh through all of Paul's accomplishments, he says, I find confidence in knowing Jesus Christ. He didn't obtain his righteousness from doing all the right things. He received his righteousness from knowing the right person. So let me close with this. If you remember when David stood toe-to-toe with Goliath, he didn't stand up there thinking he was really awesome with a sling and some stones and he had this figured out, did he? 
No, his confidence was not in his own skills and abilities. His confidence was in something entirely different. So let me remind you of what David said in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 45. Listen carefully to what he says. Then David said to the Philistine, speaking to Goliath, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day, the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the armies of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and to the wild beasts of the earth, and to all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and all the assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into my hands. I want you to see that the very same thing is true in our battle against sin. We don't conquer Goliath in our lives because of our own strength. The battle belongs to the Lord. And if we want to see a life of victory, then we've got to have a life of daily surrender, knowing that this is not about doing all the right things. This is about knowing the right person and loving him and cherishing him because you understand how much he loves and cherishes you. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you for the promises of your word and that you, Lord, thank you. Thank you that you did not leave us to ourselves, that this is not a matter of us getting out here and doing the best we can that this is a matter of us coming to you and know that we can't do anything apart from you, that we rely on you and that you promise to strengthen us and give us everything, everything that we need for life and godliness. And that the more we live according to your magnificent promises, the more we experience the reality of your divine nature within us as a new creation. Old things gone, new things have come. Lord, would you help us live out of the identity of who we are in you? Because you have won the victory for us. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Please stand and let's sing together. I really have to believe that when we look at a passage like this, that every single one of us in this room understand what it's talking about. Because we've been in the battle, right? And probably every one of us has experienced failure of trying to fight that battle in the strength of our flesh. It just doesn't work. But God is so gracious, and I want you to hear this this morning. You don't have to pretend that you've got it all, everything's okay, and you've never made a mistake, and that all's good. That there's actually more redemption in your brokenness than there is in your pretending to be righteous. The Bible actually tells us that his power is perfected in our weakness. And I think the reason it says that is because when we are weak, we turn to him who is strong. We trust in him instead of trusting in ourselves. And guess what? Every time you do, he embraces you. He welcomes you. He forgives you. He restores you. He makes you new. So live out of the reality of who you already are in Christ, your true identity, not your old humanity. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for that promise. 
that your power is perfected in our weakness, that when we are weak, we are made strong because we surrender to our own strength and we depend on yours, and you are always faithful. You are always good. You restore, you redeem, you forgive. So Lord, I pray that as we grow, that we learn more and more to rely on those magnificent promises. And as the more we do, the more that we find that they are creating within us a divine nature that lives by a divine power, knowing that we have everything that we need for life and godliness. May that be increasingly true as we put our trust in you. We pray this in your name. Amen.